Good day, dear listeners. Today is Ascension Day. It used to be a South African holiday, and for many of us, we might have it marked in our calendars. Many of us understand the importance of Good Friday, when Jesus died for our sins, and Easter Sunday, when he was raised from the dead. But for many Christians and churches, Jesus' ascension is simply an afterthought to Easter and Good Friday. Today, I want to reflect on the significance of Jesus' ascension, his exaltation, and specifically his enthronement, in hopes that this significant and climactic event in Jesus' life is not just an afterthought for you today. One reason that the ascension is important is that it completes Jesus' earthly mission and signifies his enthronement as heavenly king. It is his coronation. Jesus has completed his father's mission and he now rules with all authority and intercedes with all sympathy as our mediator and high priest. At Jesus' ascension, he is installed as the true king of the world. According to the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Jesus is taken up to heaven in a cloud, this we see in Acts 1 from verse 9 to 11. And Stephen declares that he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God in Acts 7, uh, 56. These texts suggest that Jesus' ascension fulfills the important prophecy of Daniel. And I want to read this for us. This is in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I read for us. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Till there. Jesus' kingdom cannot be destroyed and will not pass away. According to Revelation 3 uh, verse uh, 21, Jesus conquered and sat down with his father on his throne where he receives unending praise. Thus, God's kingdom has been inaugurated through the enthronement of Jesus. And he, who, he now sits on heaven's throne and will return to consummate his kingdom on earth as in heaven. So, when we read how how Paul summarizes this, he, he summarizes uh, the mystery of godliness uh, in 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in all the world, and taken up in glory. So this matter of the ascension then, it is included in this idea of God's godliness, included in the creeds and confessions, although it is neglected many times in the church, um, if we're honest. 
It is described for us in the book of Acts and the Gospels and the Epistles and the Old Testament. And what I want to do today is I, I want to, um, to show us that this doesn't just pop up. It, it, it does not just emerge in the New Testament, um, but that it comes from the Old Testament, that it should not surprise us. There are lines that run through the Old Testament that are pointing forward, that can ultimately only find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ as King. I want us to reflect on two points from the Old Testament in the Psalms. The first is in Psalm 110 uh, verse 1, and it's a Psalm of David, and it reads, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And we do not have time for it, but if you would have, if you, you read through this old psalm, and I would encourage you to do so, uh, you will see and you will notice that the king has a throne, he has a footstool, he has a scepter, and he has an army. And if we, if we read this ascension passage in Acts chapter 2, and we see Peter preaching, um, he, he says this, he says, this Jesus God raised up, we're witnesses of, being exalted at the right hand of the Father and received the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this that you yourselves are hearing and seeing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord is my Lord. So where is this quote from? Peter is quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what is Peter doing here? Peter, he has been instructed by Jesus after the, the crucifixion and Jesus appearing to the disciples. He expounded the scriptures to, do, to them in Luke 24 and he explained to them who he was uh, concerning the scriptures, that he is this king. And so when we read, let all the history of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What Peter is saying there is, I understand my Bible, I understand the scriptures now. I now understand Psalm 110. Psalm 110 asks, who is this king? And it is a prophetic picture. And usually when we have a prophetic picture, it's like walking up a mountain. And we see a peak. But once we reach the fulfillment, once we see uh, come to that peak, we see there's a higher peak and a higher peak up until we come to the top of that mountain. So there is an immediate fulfillment in Psalm 110 with the Davidic kingship. But the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate thing that Peter points us to is he is saying that what David is really talking about is Jesus. He is resurrected and the ascended king. He has an army. He is the Lord of the heavens armies. He has the scepter, this authority and this throne. And, and that is what the point that we should take from Psalm 110. 
I want to move us to a, a second thought uh, to reflect on Psalm 24. Alistair Begg, when he was a young boy, used to be taken to Glasgow by his father to specifically go and listen to choirs and he usually uh, went really uh, reluctantly but when he went he there was this one song that always stood out for him and it was uh, Psalm 24 from verses 7 to 10 that they used to sing and they sang it uh, from uh, a King James um, version and and the words are, I'll read it for us. Uh, the, the first half of the group would sing, Ye gates, lift up your heads on high. Ye doors that last for a day, be lifted up, that the King of glory enter may. For who of glory is the King? And then the other half would reply, The mighty Lord is this, in that same Lord that great and might and strong is uh, in battle ease. And then they would repeat this again. Um, and it, it almost mimics the psalm. It uh, maybe exactly mimics the psalm. The psalm repeats this phrase two times. It uh, repeats, who is this king? This king that is mentioned uh, in Psalm 24 from verse 7 to 10. Um, and what was interesting is that Alistair Begg, he remembered uh, sitting and he, he saw that these uh, singers were so enthusiastic, so excited uh, about the song. And, and he asked himself, who was this king? And it was a wonderful day for him when he realized that this king is Jesus. That the picture here in Psalm 24 is of the dwelling place of God like a secured, walled-off city with gates. And the picture of Psalm 24 is fully fulfilled as the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the city. He left the city to become the saviour that we need. He suffered outside the walls of the city, as it were, in his death on the cross. In coming, he became what he never was, namely man, without ceasing to be what he was, namely God. But now, as he returns to the city as both God and man, he left solely as God, pre-incarnation. He returns now bearing the battle scars of his triumph in the cross. That question of who is this king is the question that reverberates through all the ages. In the 4th century, Gregory of Nyssa speculated, and I think that he, this is helpful for our devotion, um, but he speculated about why it was that these people did not recognize the king, who is this king of glory, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Who is this king of glory? Why did they have to ask a second time in this passage? And Gregory said they did not recognize him because he had put on the poor stature of our human nature and his garments were red from the winepress of our sins. So although this is speculation, it is a wonderful picture, isn't it? It is wonderful because it is true. So 
he returns to the father's side bearing in his body his wounds and his wounds are visible above in his ascension and it is beautiful and it is glorified so why does this matter does this mean something and I wanted to put it to you yes I want to show you that it means a couple of things in some finishing thoughts the first is that the doctrine of the ascension is included um, in our creeds it is neglected in our church it is described in our gospels and anticipated in the psalms and it is largely expounded um, or applied in the epistles in the letters of the church but I want to, to point out two things for us here. The first is um, the significance of this, uh, the, the ascension. What did the writers of the letters want us to get? Well, first of all, they wanted us to understand, without a doubt, that Jesus accomplished his mission. That his being seated at the right hand of the Father is indicative of the fact that he has accomplished all that he has set out to do. It reads in Hebrews 1 verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So as Christ returns to the Father, he returns to the place of authority. But the function of the priests of the temple in the tabernacle never came to an end up until Christ entered. The fact that Jesus Christ sits is because the mission is accomplished. No more sacrifice is needed. It is also a fact that having accomplished this work, our acceptance before God is solely and entirely on the basis of that sacrifice. Flavel, the Puritan, uh, he said, If Christ had not ascended, how could we be sure that his payment on the cross made full satisfaction to God and that God now has no more bulls to bring in against us? Christ's scars in heaven, says Bruce Milne, uh, he says it's signs not of failure to overcome his physical brokenness, but of his compassionate identification with us in our pains and in our sorrows. That is why when we sometimes say that when we are touched with feelings of our infirmities, we say something that is in keeping with the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is governing the universe. That is in Hebrews 1. He is ruling his church, that is in Ephesians 1. He is helping its members, that is in Hebrews 2. He is pleading our case, that is in 1 John 2. So that when we approach his throne, broken and embarrassed, and feeling weak and inadequate, we find it to be a throne of grace. I think I can summarize it this way. The effect of the ascension in the life of the believer should be 
and number one a cause of deep-seated assurance and uh, secondly it should be a call to wholehearted endeavor to act to action um, it is interesting maybe one last reflection on the disciples that how they responded to the ascension before two weeks or so prior to the ascension they were quivering with fear of what is to come but now when they return after the ascension um, and they we see in scripture that they are worshiping they are obeying and they returned with great joy they didn't immediately say okay we have to enshrine this moment they didn't create a monument um, they they rather said they had their instructions from God so that they went back to the world of Jerusalem they plunged themselves headlong into the stormy challenges of a world without God and in the process they gave their lives why did they do all this? They did it because Jesus Christ ascended and was enthroned as King. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you help us lay hold of this teaching. We ask that you forgive us where we might have neglected your ascension in our lives and in our hearts and the consequences thereof. We thank you that you are our Lord Jesus Christ, our advocate with the Father. We thank you that you intercede for us. We thank you that your mission has been accomplished. And we thank you that the Father has accepted all that you have done. And so, Lord, I ask that you, that you galvanize this in us. That by the power and reality, the reality of your ascension, that you pour out your spirit on the church in order that we might do ministry without which we are starved. And I ask for your assurance of your presence with us, you as the living God, without which we are alone in this world. I also ask for the awareness of your purpose for us that we might go to the very ends of the earth to let people know who Jesus is and what he has done help us to do this father I pray all of this in Christ's name Amen